Welcome to the Circular Innovation Podcast. Join us as we dive deep and explore the concept of circular innovation and how it's reshaping brands, technology, and operations. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Circular Innovation Podcast. I'm joined, I'm the co-host, Richard Bliss, and I'm joined by my other co-hosts. Jess Schistler, the co-founder and CEO of Maven Circular. And Nate Schistler, co-founder and chief maven of Circular. Well, we're certainly getting to know each other pretty good here as we've gone through these episodes talking about the circular uh, economy. We're going to, so normally, Jess and Nate, we, in the past, we've kind of taken an opportunity to explain to people this idea of re-commerce, the circular economy. But I, th- I think if they want to learn that, they can listen to the previous three episodes. So instead, let's dive deep into the idea of setting up and designing circular service offerings. I got to say that three times real fast, so I'm, I'm practicing. Yeah. But this idea of how to make this actually work. So where would we start? Who 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 starts with that? Yeah, Nate, let's start with you. Yeah, I think um, I think like so many things, you have to. I, I use this phrase a lot. You have to start at the bottom of your supply chain. Um, and so when we think about a e-commerce program, you know, what are those like base elements that have to be true for it to be successful? You have to have um, an operator or in-house operations that are capable of receiving returns and, you know, unusual shipments of product and inspecting them and performing detailed services to them. You have to have a technology solution that enables that operator to do that, uh, both efficiently and accurately to things that are often at odds with each other, especially when you're thinking about the reality of processing one unit at a time, you're never able to process, um, you know, inventory in like a bulk setting, but then to round that out, you have to have a storefront and order management system that is able to track inventory in a non-traditional way. And here's what I mean by that. This is why for many years, this, um, you know, re-commerce as a channel has been slow to evolve. When you think about the, the product hierarchy of an individual item, I'll use the term SKU, kind of like synonymous with a, with a unique item. A SKU is a combination of style, color, and size. And those three parameters typically in a, in a, you know, let's take, we're going to stick with, you know, apparel for a minute because that's really like the most common e-commerce channel we're seeing right now. So in, in the apparel world, style, color, size, make up a SKU. Recommerce complicates that by adding conditionality as an attribute. So now where before, if you had two red t-shirts size large, they were interchangeable because they were brand new from the factory. And so when, when brand X cuts a PO from their factory and that factory ships them a case of size, large red t-shirts, they're all the same. And each red t-shirt is interchangeable because they're all identical. But then when you sell those red t-shirts and then some percentage of them, sometimes as many as 30% of them come back to you as the brand, they're now different. Some have been worn, some haven't been worn. Some are still in the original packaging. Some are out of the original packaging, but maybe look like they haven't been worn. Some of them have been washed, some haven't been washed. And so, you know, maybe one has a stain on it or a thread pull. And was that caused by the customer or was it like a factory defect? And so you have all these uh, like, Condition out, you have this conditionality that makes those two red t shirts now unique and distinct. And to make a circular program work, you have to have 
operations and technology aligned in such a way that you are able to facilitate the intake, inspection, and sale of those unique red t-shirts to a new consumer. And you have to do that. And this is where like, you know, Jess adds a ton of value. You have to, that sales process, that storefront process has to be presented to the consumer in a way that feels a lot like traditional commerce. And so, you know, brands need to have the ability to like sort and filter products on their storefront, as opposed to having duplicated product display pages. And so, you know, Jess, I, I think you like have some thoughts here, but like, there are certainly examples out there of like really bad re-commerce storefronts where you can't sort and filter and find products. And there's examples of ones that are really easy to navigate. And, and that really drives the consumer experience on that like new selling channel. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, you know, you have the technology of the operators and, and you also need, um, someone sitting in corporate of a specific brand driving the program. Yep. So, you know, you have a CFO looking at the financial gains, but you also need to have a someone in a role, a C-level role that's driving this to at least stand up. An executive sponsor. Yeah, exactly. And without that, it doesn't, doesn't ever go. So you might have a sustainability department that's driving an initiative to be more sustainable, um, you know, operating, or it might be, you know, on the inbound from factory into whatever country they're working in. But unless you have someone at the top that is driving this program, you won't be successful. So that I think that's the third key component of what you're sharing, Nate, is, you know, you need to have a stakeholder driving this. It's one thing to have the technology and the operations team all aligned, but you need someone kind of marching, marching the team. Yeah, and, and we've seen examples of this done really well, but we've also seen examples of it um, where, just to your point, like if there's not executive buy-in, the, the program just falls flat on its face. We we had a interaction with one brand where the, the COO was the executive champion and the CEO was like openly not in favor of the program. And you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Like, how do you get to that point where there's like that amount of misalignment at, at the corporate level? Um, but then we've also seen examples, you know, as you mentioned, like a sustainability person where sustainability, the sustainability team is driving the initiative, but then when it hits the desk of the CFO or the chief commercial officer, they're not on board or they're not briefed or they're not ready for it. So you do all this work to like bring a program together, but without having that executive sponsor engaged from the beginning, um, they're not able to kind of cut through the red tape of yeah. getting the signatures needed to a bunch of hurry up and wait, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Is are there some are there some techniques, tactics, uh, approaches that help or work best when it comes to getting that executive buy-in? Because I know, and we've alluded to it in the previous episodes, there's a cost associated with this. And Absolutely. what's shifting What's shifting now, I think, is that you're able to approach this not just from a, hey, let's avoid bad PR to, hey, here is an untapped trillion dollar market that we could take a portion of that and take advantage of that. Is is that yeah. one of the key arguments now that's happening? I think so. But just to answer your first question, I think, you know, when we're interfacing with a brand, we're asking the questions up front. We've kind of experienced, you know, the the fallout of 
not having buy-in. Um, so when we're having those initial conversations, we're asking up front, who's driving this at your corporate office or who is um, invested in this fun- from a financial perspective? And, you know, if, if the, the room gets quiet, you know, we're able to start to have those conversations to help them talk within their own organization because, you know, we're not going to sit there and talk to their CEO or CFO sometimes, but, you know, encouraging them and educating them on what can be shared with their internal teams is something that, you know, we've started to implement in our practices because, you know, there's a lot of time being spent in some of those starting conversations, um, you know, and, and if it just gets paused, you know, the sustainability program team gets frustrated or the finance team gets frustrated or e-com team, whichever team is initially reaching out um, and wants to drive this initiative, um, you know, there's there's a bit of frustration there. So the other thing we're, we're asking, you know, really like session one with a new client, especially a brand client, is let's have a real conversation about what your goals and objectives are for the program. And by real conversation, I mean, is this a marketing effort? And if it is, okay, that, that's fine. That's not necessarily the wrong answer. But, you know, there is a reality that profit margins on these programs are very tight. And um, if the objective is to just recover lost revenue from returns and view this as a really strong marketing moment and customer engagement strategy, that's okay. Let's just make sure that all parties are aligned on that. And so when we help that team put a solution together and it hits the desk of their CFO and that CFO says, well, the program is just breaking even. We're saying, but yeah, it's, you said you wanted to, you know, to be like a marketing initiative. And he's like, no, I want to make money on it. Great. Well, then that's maybe a different set of solutions. And so let's have that real conversation early about what your goals and objectives are so that as we're going through the design process, as we're helping a brand select vendors, um, you know, we're making those decisions with that end goal in mind and that, and that conversation has happened internally, not at the moment where we're ready to kind of sign the onto the dotted line and move forward. And sometimes brands don't even know what their yeah. goals are yet. Yeah. So, you know, we spent a bit of time doing whiteboard sessions on, you know, what's the pain points and what, are, what problem are you trying to solve? And then from there, we'll tease it out with them and then we'll start to help identify with their teams who else needs to be in the conversation. What would be some of those pain points that they're trying to solve when you get up in front of that whiteboard and you're uh, making that starting starting that conversation? What are some of those goals that uh, you mentioned? One would be just a marketing initiative. Yeah, marketing PR sort of um, initiative. And a- another big one that we get into is um, just their warehouse and the, the between a combination of the warehouse and product. But there's so much inventory sitting in their warehouse; they actually need either to buy more space or they need to exit product. So, I'll, you know, sometimes it's it's efforts to um, lower their inventory levels. Yeah, I mean, really like to like suss out in that conversation, like, is this a, is this truly a returns problem that you, that you need help solving? Is it really the issue? Or to Jess's point, are you sitting on two or three seasons of, you know, past seasons of excess inventory that you need to move? And either answer is okay, but knowing the true intention of the program helps us make choices in support of that client to, to lead them down the path of, you know, highest probability of success. Got it. When we're talking about, go, go ahead, Jess. Nate, sorry, I was just going to share. So we have the marketing, we have inventory levels, 
Is there anything else that we support in um, yeah, or think, we see a lot? Yeah, financial conversations. Having the financial conversation is a really important one. Having it as early as possible so that we understand expectations. Um, and, you know, really early engagement with the, you know, the champion of, um, you know, their customer support team at a leadership level and, and organizations structure this differently, but like, you know, how do you want to engage with your customers through this program and, and making sure that, that, that person has, a, has a voice in that conversation. Cause we talked about previously also, there's also the, um, Jess, it's the the knockoff protection, which doesn't fall necessarily yeah, in marketing. That's, it a, kinda... that's a big one. Yeah, that's a big one I've been trying to share is, you know, authenticity. So a lot of these programs are higher end brands that can, you know, first of all, from an economics perspective, they can afford a second time around. And they, you know, in terms of like a pair of pants that are $120 versus a pair of pants that are $29. So you know, a, pan- a pair of pants that are $29 isn't going to have the same level of luxury, of course. But within the brand, you know, you might have challenges in the black market with knockoffs. And having a program like this can really support from a, um, you know, the consumer's trust that they're buying the brand, true, authentic brand and quality when they're being sold through a re-commerce program that the brand owns. Um, You know, I've just experienced this when, you know, I've got a party that I'm going to and I want to buy a new purse and, um, you know, I can go on a couple different websites and I'm just like, that seems a little too good to be true. And I'm not an expert in knowing, you know, does the fabric line up and is it a true Louis Vuitton or is the Lululemon um, logo in the wrong spot on the pants? And, you know, me as a consumer, I just want to, if I'm going to be spending the money on a secondhand high-end product, I want to make sure that, you know, I don't have to be the expert to know if it's real or not. And having a program like this really enables the consumer to have the trust with the brand. And that is also like another conversation. And often, you know, a driver of these programs is, building trust with the consumer. But as a consumer myself, that's something that I I naturally gravitate to as well. In the past, how have these high-end brands handled this? They haven't. They've they've dealt with the fallout of um increasing, you know, kind of black market, gray market interference with their products. And and there's some really innovative things happening now. And I say innovative from a, um, you know, this would be a bit of an aside, not, not necessarily innovative in the technology space, but, you know, Lou Lemon did something very recently um, where they had, I think it was in LA, they did this. They set up a, forget exactly what they called it, had like a brilliant catchy thing, but basically like you could bring in your fake Lou Lemon leggings and they would exchange them for a, for a real pair of whatever it was that you had a fake of, yeah, at no cost, really. Yeah, that it was seem, such a great that would seem to because, but I would think that would incent the fake Lululemon people to make more. I don't know. Yeah, when so I'm on Instagram and I'm watching all these people trying to sell you things 100 percent of the, their time. You know, they're on it. They're trying to sell Amazon stuff and they get a kickback from each purchase and they're on commission. And then Lululemon takes this really strong stance on their brand quality. And personally, I've never purchased 
this knockoff of, you know, the Align pants from Lululemon, but the the amount of people that showed up to do that was incredible. And incredible. and what I would share, you know, looking inward at Lululemon as an outsider now is that is such a strong stance in their quality. Like they know that their product is better and they want it out there even if you can't afford it right now. So trade in your $10 pants you bought off of Amazon. We'll give you a real pair. And me looking at this holistically on the outside now, I think that's going to drive sales in their e-commerce program. So they have a like new program and you're going to have a consumer that has never been able to afford their pant. Now they have a free pair of pants and they're like, gosh, these are way nicer than my knockoffs. And how do I buy more of this, but I don't want to spend $120? And now there's a solution. You know, they have this e-commerce program. So I actually think it's, you know, a strategic approach, but, you know, this building trust. But they also have a e-commerce program that I think is a bit of a stepping stone. Yeah. And, and so my my comment earlier about, you know, Richard, your question, like, how have brands handled this in the past? And they haven't. It's, you know, I'm being a bit dramatic there, but like, many, many premium brands until very recently have taken a very um, strict uh, approach on how they think about acquiring new customers and interacting with their customers and protecting brand identity. And what we're seeing consistently from the Lululemons of the world and from, um, you know, Coach and other like luxury product makers is that those preconceptions about the impact of how you interact with a customer and how that, how that reflects on your brand, those preconceived notions are wrong. And so five years ago, the thought of Lululemon saying, bring us your fakes and we'll give you a real pair of pants was like blasphemy. But now they did this one-off pop-up thing and it was wildly successful. And they engaged with hundreds of thousands of consumers in a very short period of time. And now other brands are looking at saying, oh, that was a brilliant move. Maybe we should consider doing that. And, and another common one is like this idea that selling your used returns is somehow damaging to the premiumness of your brand. But I think as a culture, we're starting to see the tide shift away from that way of thinking. And, and, and instead of the concern of like selling a used thing being brand damaging, now brands are saying, if we're, if we're not off, everyone knows that we have returns. If we're not offering, you know, returns and in, in some type of brand certified used marketplace, people are going to be asking for it. And so what we're seeing now with, you know, brands is consumer driven demand for a re-commerce program. Um, and, and that's starting to happen. That's starting to be more and more, you know, frequent when we interact with, with brands and retailers is that they know there's this pent up demand for it and they just want to meet that demand where it is. And Richard, to answer your question really directly, what brands were doing was they were shredding their product. Yeah. And it was going to a landfill. So you have these high-end brands that didn't want their, let's call it purses or apparel. They don't want it out in Goodwill or they don't want it have, like they don't want it at a garage sale. They would shred them and it would go to landfill. They also incinerate. Um, that's an ugly truth in the, in the industry that, you know, we've talked about in, uh, on a couple posts on LinkedIn, but, um, Ultimately, they're impacting the environment. 
Well, this has been uh, certainly informative and eye-opening a little bit about uh, some things. One of the things I've really liked about this episode is that identifying the internal champions, aligning the goals of the organizations, making sure that you identify the pain points and helping solve that. And then this idea of, of putting something in place, whether it's protecting your brand, it's a marketing initiative, it's a financial decision, all of these are critically important. Nate, Jess, this has been extremely informative. I'm really uh, excited about this episode. Thanks, thanks for uh, sharing so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of Circular Innovation. I'm your co-host, Richard Bliss, being joined by Jess and Nate uh, of Maven Circular. And we've been talking about a lot of uh, different topics. Uh, please tune in for our next episode. And uh, if you just dropped into the middle of this one, be sure to catch the previous episodes that we've had. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Circular Innovation Podcast. Join us again as we continue to explore and unravel the complexities of circular innovation.